Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 101, Totally Tubular, where we extend the allotropes of carbon beyond tiny soccer balls and their cousins to other interesting shapes. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. After Wolfgang Kretschmer and Donald Huffman announced their method of synthesizing macroscopic gram amounts of Buckminster Fullerene, that is C60 soccer ball shaped molecules, in late 1990, nanochemistry with carbon pulled full speed ahead. One of these researchers on buckyballs, a specialist in electron microscopy, was at NEC Corporation in the Fundamental Research Laboratories. He was named Sumio Iijima. He was trying to create C60 molecules and their cousins, all called fullerenes after Buckminster Fuller, using the arc discharge method between two carbon electrodes in a chamber. He discovered carbon-containing needles growing at the negative electrode in his apparatus. Using an electron microscope, he found that these carbon needles were really sheets of graphite curled up into carbon tubes. Recall that graphite is single layers of carbons arranged in a hexagonal array, like viewing the top surface of a beehive. Each layer of carbon is weakly bonded to the ones above and below it, meaning that the sheets can be easily separated, and that's more or less how a pencil works in writing, peeling off layers of graphite that stick to the paper as the pencil drags across the sheet. From a molecular standpoint, every carbon in graphite has three of its four valence electrons hybridized into sp2 orbitals, plus the fourth electron is free to spread out, to delocalize across the entire sheet of graphite. But here, Iijima found that single sheets of carbon were coiled up into tubes, shaped like nanoscopic straws with a variety of diameters. He reported this observation in the famous journal Nature under the title Helical Microtubules of Graphitic Carbon in November 1991. These tubes were multilayers, so more like straws arranged concentrically inside other straws. There could be many layers of tubes inside other tubes, as his electron microscopy showed, with a spacing of 0.34 nanometers from one tube's radius to the next one larger. The smallest ones had a diameter of about 2.2 nanometers. Interestingly, Iijima's discovery was seen earlier, but not universally recognized for what it was. Back in 1952, 
L. V. Radushkevich and V. M. Lukyanovich published an article in the Russian Journal of Physical Chemistry called "The Structure of Carbon Forming in Thermal Decomposition of Carbon Monoxide on an Iron Catalyst." Their transmission electron microscope images showed carbon tubes with a diameter of 50 nanometers, but Of course, the article was in Russian and pretty much ignored. And then we move forward another couple of decades to 1976. Three scientists, Morinobu Endo, Agnès Oberlin, and Tsuneo Koyama from Japan and France, reported in the Journal of Crystal Growth, according to the title of their paper, "Filamentous Growth." Of carbon through benzene decomposition, by which they heated up benzene as a gas in hydrogen, and then let it decompose by high heat at 1,100 degrees Celsius. The carbon filaments that grew, they reported, were hollow, with diameters of two to 50 nanometers, and looked in cross section like tree rings. By 1979. New Zealand researchers John Abrahamson, Peter Wiles, and Brian Rhodes reported on carbon fibers created in an electrical discharge on carbon anodes at a conference at Pennsylvania State University. And in 1982, a team of Ukrainian scientists, A. M. Nesterenko, N. F. Kolesnik, U. S. Akhmatov. V. I. Suhomlin and O. V. Prilutsky in another Soviet science journal in 1982, who once again saw carbon nanotubes. Not only that, these authors published a model of the molecular structure of these tubes with graphitic sheets of carbon that pretty much matches what Iijima found. The final precursor to Iijima's alleged discovery. Is a United States patent by Howard Tennant, working for Hyperion Catalysis International, filed in 1984 and granted in 1987. The patent is called Carbon Fibrils Method for Producing Same and Compositions Containing Same. Tennant describes a quote cylindrical discrete carbon fibril. Characterized by a substantially constant diameter between about 3.5 and about 70 nanometers, e.g., between about 7 and 25 nanometers. Unquote. Proposed usages are for polymers, whether organic or inorganic, or even metals, to act as reinforcement or improve electrical conduction and some other uses. So, I don't want to get into the debate here. As to whether Iijima discovered carbon nanotubes, all I can say is that, like other cases in chemistry, chemists not only have to report what they find, but the rest of the chemical community has to be ready to accept and assimilate that knowledge. In essence, by 1991, chemists were primed by fullerenes to accept more carbon allotropes. A couple of years later, in 1993, Iijima and independently Donald Bethune advanced the chemical knowledge of carbon nanotubes by finding out how to grow single-walled carbon nanotubes 
which aren't concentrically arranged, but just a single straw-shaped molecule. They found that if you add some cobalt metal to one anode in the chamber in which you grow nanotubes, the resulting nanotubes are single-walled. It's been found later that other metals also do the trick, such as iron, nickel, molybdenum, or yttrium. Besides the arc discharge method, you can also make carbon nanotubes with lasers. You shine a powerful laser onto your carbon target, which gets vaporized into gas. You push some inert carrier gas across the area above the target, and collect the carbon atoms, which have condensed into nanotubes. Another method to make carbon nanotubes is via chemical vapor deposition. We already mentioned this way, abbreviated as CVD, as a path to synthesizing diamonds. But here, you take some hydrocarbon gases, pass them over a hot metal catalyst, and the catalyst promotes creation of the nanotubes. To be clear, none of these methods is really great at making nanotubes, meaning that synthesizing them is still expensive and difficult on the commercial scale. So, what makes these nanotubes so special? Let's go through some of their chemical and physical properties. Mechanically, carbon nanotubes are strong for their size, in fact, stronger than steel. They are less dense than aluminum, generally the gold standard for lightweight industrial metals. They also are stable in a vacuum up to 1400 degrees Celsius. In engineering terms, the compound has a specific strength of up to 48 meganewtons meter per kilogram, which is the highest of any material. High carbon steel is only 154 kilonewton meter per kilogram. That is, carbon nanotubes can be 300 times as strong as steel, accounting for density. All that said about their tensile strength, because they are hollow, you can compress them or bend them. Less well understood is how squishy they are across their diameter, but some early studies indicate that, yes, they are squishy to a measurable degree. Electrically, things get complicated. When I first described them, I just said that you roll up a sheet of graphite to create a nanotube structure. That's basically true, but it also depends on how you roll them up. Without getting into gruesome details, you can cut the sheet along certain carbon-carbon bonds, or in various diagonal ways, and each different method of cutting and curling into a tube will give a different diameter to the tube with a different arrangement of the carbon hexagons on the tube's surface. So, depending on the pattern of hexagons on the tube, the tube can be electrically conductive or semiconducting. Obviously, though, you can see electrical engineers looking at these nanotubes as possible molecular wires or possible sources for making electronic components. As with known semiconductors like silicon and germanium, you can introduce small quantities of boron or nitrogen dopants to make P-type and N-type semiconducting nanotubes. 
but even more, the surface of a nanotube is much more important than typical materials because essentially the entire molecule is a tubular surface. So if you let some molecules adsorb or stick to the tube's surface, that also affects the nanotube's electrical conduction. As to superconductivity, there exists some evidence for nanotubes being superconductive at cryogenic temperatures, but we don't have good data yet. Thermally, single-walled carbon nanotubes conduct heat extremely well along the length of the tube, many times better than copper, but insulate outward from the center of the tube along its radius. Apparently, bundling the tubes together lowers significantly the conductivity, but even so, there are thoughts out there in the material science world about using these molecules as miniature heat pipes. Optically, because these materials are nearly perfect one-dimensional compounds, they show much sharper spectroscopic peaks than standard solids. Often these nanotubes can bundle together like logs in a stack, and that can also affect their spectroscopy. And if they are multi-walled, that complicates spectroscopic data even more, for each concentric nanotube of a different size affects the absorption. Carbon nanotubes do luminesce when illuminated, generally emitting their luminescence in near-infrared ranges, say around 1100 nanometers to 1800 nanometers. LEDs even have been constructed using them. Physically, they are built like miniature drinking straws or pipes. That means you can perhaps use them as conduits for molecules or store molecules inside them, kind of like peas in a pod. In fact, sometimes these molecules are called pea pods. So now you can see, as soon as chemists recognized what carbon nanotubes are, they also recognized their potential. For example, one of the main uses for carbon nanotubes is to improve the strength of formerly all plastic parts. How is this done? You can put the nanotubes as a suspension into your polymer liquid solution and stir. Examples include nanotubes and polystyrene in toluene liquid, or nanotubes and polymethyl methacrylate in toluene. You can melt an existing polymer and mix the nanotubes in. One example is polystyrene, polypropylene, and acrylonitrile butadiene styrene, and mixing in the nanotubes. You can take your monomers, add the nanotubes, and then make the monomers link up in polymerization. This has been done with nanotubes plus polymethyl methacrylate. There is considerable research to be done on making sure your nanotubes mix in well and are properly dispersed in your material, and to make sure the plastic adheres well to the nanotubes. Sometimes chemists can put special molecular groups on the nanotubes, such as carboxylic acid, COOH, or hydroxide, OH, just to get good bonding to the plastic. You want to get the strongest plastic so it is tempting to just keep adding nanotubes, but then the mixing problem gets worse.
One other issue is the alignment of the nanotubes. They are long and thin, like many organic liquid crystal molecules. So, do you want the molecules randomly arranged or all pointing in one direction? So far, there are some commercial applications for carbon nanotubes. Bicycle manufacturers often use nanotube composite plastics for parts of bicycle frames and handlebars. Some manufacturers of sports equipment now use them for hockey sticks, baseball bats, skis, surfboards, and arrows. Here's another interesting application for nanotubes. A special double-sided adhesive tape, gecko tape, or also known as nano tape, used for non-destructive hanging of lighter objects on walls. For example, pictures. There is no need to bang a nail into the wall and leave holes to be filled later. How might this work? Biologists know that geckos, small lizards, can run up and down smooth walls without falling. On their feet are micrometer-length hairs, which have branches on the nanometer scale. The hairs and branches form weak van der Waals bonds with the wall. There are so many tiny hairs that even a million weak bonds added up makes a strong bond to the wall. Likewise, gecko tape has bundles of carbon nanotubes with individual tubes. Each with weak van der Waals bonds. Whenever each tube meets another object, but add up millions of individual nanotube bonds, and you get strong but easily peelable tape. Another use for a carbon nanotube is now as a tip for atomic force microscopes. A single tube is of the right size to act as a probe to scan across a surface. Here's a final practical application of carbon nanotubes: ultra black paint. A trade name for this is Vanta Black, and the name begins to explain how such paint works. Vanta here is an acronym for vertically aligned nanotube arrays. The paint is a dense array of vertical nanotubes, which optically traps light in the myriad crevices. And thus absorbs more than 99.9% of incoming light. Later, another firm developed singularity black paint as an answer to controversial monopolistic issues with Vanta Black. Why would you need such super duper black paint rather than regular black paint from your hardware or DIY store for special optical applications? Telescopes can use it inside their tubes to prevent stray light from marring images. Likewise, infrared cameras need it. There are ideas for futuristic applications, though not yet available as of this episode. The first one I mention is using carbon nanotubes as a kind of ultra miniature tinker toy or mechano struts to build scaffolds for storage of energy, electronics. Solar cells and medical implants. Imagine a regular array of these carbon nanotubes as a three-dimensional grid. There are specific size pores 
through which some molecules might pass and others get held back. Therefore, such a scaffold could even be a membrane of sorts. I mentioned the electronic ideas already, conductive carbon nanotubes used as tiny wires plus semiconducting nanotubes for nanoscopic molecular transistors. What about spinning carbon nanotubes into yarn to make special fabrics or casting the nanotubes into sheets? Perhaps we can have conductive, flexible cloth or better transformers which use coils of wire. There is research into using carbon nanotubes in environmental sciences as monitoring devices. Nanotubes have a high surface area. They are basically all surface of a tube and adsorb all kinds of gases. Perhaps different nanotubes can be treated to absorb different gases. The moral of this episode is that carbon, the element which gives us so many different molecules as 19th century chemistry began to reveal, still holds surprises for chemists. You cook carbon under different conditions and you get all sorts of odd and strange molecules. We shall see more such surprises as our chemical history moves forward, but at least know that a seemingly simple ultramicroscopic tube can be both fascinating and useful and is still a very active area of research. In our next episode, we turn to something completely different, philosophy as applied to chemistry, and see where that leads us. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.